Grateful for our Alpha and Omega worship team leading us in worship this morning. I'm also grateful for uh, Scott and George who got here this morning at 3.30 to start plowing us out. And uh, so they were here in the first service and I think they're home sleeping now since they got here so early. They did a great job and had it all ready by 7 o'clock so we could get some salt and sand down and get things going along as we, we go. So hey, uh, just a, a brief word, um, an encouragement if you will. Before we get into the message this morning, um, most of you are aware of the fact that back in, in the middle of 2019, in the summer of 2019, we, we made a decision as a church uh, to switch over to a, a national form of background checks instead of just the state Massachusetts checks. And, um, and we, we, we need to get a lot more of those done, okay? Um, it takes 125 people a week to make Hope Chapel happen. And, um, and the reason why I'm kind of prompting again for those of you who maybe got a link and just never bothered to fill it out and said, hey, I did it before, whatever. I mean, we have an event like YEC coming up, right? When we're trying to get 80 teenagers out to Sturbridge. You cannot be a driver if you've not been quarried. And so unless we have to have to send the shuttle going four or five times to get people out of the van back and forth to get kids out there, you cannot be a sponsor in a room if you've not been quarried. You can't be an on-the-spot volunteer in Kids Connect on a Sunday morning and say, hey, we're short of teachers. Anybody want to help? Unless you've been quarried. And, and, and we do that not because we're suspicious of your background, not because we're not ready to grant grace or overcome judgmentalism. We just, we just need to do the right things, and it's the day and age in which we live. And so if you got one of those before and you haven't filled it out, if you can find that email, that's great. If not, you can just write on the, on the connection card on the handout today, say, send me a Corey check. And if you, you are willing to have that done so you can kind of be that on available backup all the time, just write Corey check on it. We'll send you a link. We, we can do as many as we need uh, through the service that we have, and it'd be really great to get those done. Because, um, you know, I, I haven't ever come across anybody who said, you know, we don't really need to be doing these, right? Everybody said, yeah, you know, we, we need to know what we're dealing with so we can protect and be gracious to all that's involved. And so um, if you haven't gotten one of those, just take a moment and, and fill that out. We're asked to have it done. It'd be great to have you on the team to be able to serve. Hey, let me just pray for just a minute and maybe use my prayer to change our tone just a little bit as we jumped into our message today. God, thank you that you are a gracious God. And I pray through the passages that we read here in Hebrews chapter 9 in just a moment, we would truly see how great you are from the things that you've done, from the impact that your activity can have in our lives. God, show us how great you are as we respond to your grace, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. If you haven't opened a Bible yet, I want to encourage you to grab one. Our text today is a little tedious, so it's going to be helpful for you to be looking at it as we go along. And if, and if you didn't bring a Bible, we have a Bible underneath your chair, and you're going to find our text today on page 1065. And if you don't happen to own a Bible, we always have Bibles available for you if you'd like to grab one of those. Now, I, I want to contextualize what we're talking about this morning just a little bit. The author of the book of Hebrews really cares about those that he's writing to. This isn't just some treatise written by a professor for a group of classes he's doing. These are people that he's deeply 
cares about. He's passionate about. He loves these people. And so he, he writes to them what we would have as like a first century podcast, right? He, the, the, there isn't a verbal, but he, he's writing to them a message to get across. And he knows that if they don't have at the core the right approach, the right philosophy, the right understandings, all of the decisions that they're going to make are going to be flawed, right? And so, and they're, they're really at one of these real crucial points where they're, they're starting to make huge decisions. I mean, we looked at last week, and this message is really a continuation of last week, that, that we as adults make essentially 35,000 choices a day. Now, a lot of those are trivial, like what color socks we wear, and etc. Other things are far more significant, like the way we respond to our spouses or to our children, or the things that, you know, and you can just go right on down the list. And, and the author of the book of Hebrews knows that if these people these people that he cares about passionately, if they don't really understand the truth about God and about Jesus, they're not going to get their decisions right. And j- j- for example, let me just kind of bring this down to a moment. If you and I have the wrong definition of success, then almost all the decisions that are going to flow from that are going to be wrong. Now, let me just give you an example. I can give you a couple examples. One, and, and I don't have any familiarity, I've never really had any deep discussions, but our, our country has a number of really violent gangs who are present in our country, right? Now, their definition of success drives much of what they do, right? You know, their understanding of what it means to show respect drives many of the actions that they have, right? And so there's this philosophy or this decision, this sense of their definition of success or, 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 or of happiness or, or being right and wrong, and it drives all the decisions that they make that flows from that. And we look at it and say, I don't get it, because that's not our definition of success or happiness. Another example, maybe not quite as dramatic, but many of us, and we got a couple of rows here who are probably in the midst of this, and in the sense of when we, when we were in junior high school and high school and college and stuff like that, there's tons of peer pressure on us, right? And sometimes in the midst of that, we say the number one good is for us to be accepted, right? To fit in, just to belong, right? So it shapes what we wear. It shapes what we say. It shapes what we do. And sometimes those who, are, who know you outside of that context look at you and, and look at us and say, what happened to you? Because the things that you're doing and the things that you're saying are not really who you are. But in that moment, when we look at it and say, you know what, fitting in is the most important thing. It drives all the other decisions that flow from it. And so the author of the book of Hebrews says, I want you to get the number one thing right so all the decisions that flow from it will be right. And his number one issue is that if we settle for anything other than Jesus as best, and driving what's going to be important in our lives, the way we relate to God, then we are settling for second best and we're going to be set aside. Now, particularly for those of you who are kind of newer to our conversation, these these readers, those he's writing to, are Jews who have become Christians. And as a result of being believers in Christ, their lives are gotten harder, not better. So a lot of them are saying, you know what, Let's let's just go back to our old understanding of what it meant to do life before God. Let's kind of give up the Jesus piece and let's go back to the 
temple. Let's go back to those offerings. And we'll just fit in with all the people that we used to fit into. And he's been making a case over and over and over again to say to do that is to act foolishly, to turn back to an old way of life rather than the life that God has given us in Jesus Christ is to act foolishly. So over and over again, he's been laying out this argument. You know what? You, want, you may want to go back to the glory days of Elisha and Elijah and the Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. All the you know what? Jesus is better than the prophets. Right? If they were good enough, Jesus wouldn't have had to come. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses who talked to God face to face because Jesus is the face of God. And right on down the line, he's been making this case. But now he gets to a place here in chapter 9 where he's trying to draw all of his argument together and to lay out this compare and contrast for us. And what we looked at last week was he said... There's this, there was this temptation on their part. Life's hard. They're getting ostracized by their families. Their, their, their livelihood is being destroyed. Things are hard. They don't fit in. They don't fit in the, in the Gentile world. They feel like they're all alone. It's like, we got to do something, right? And it's like, well, look at the glory of, of worshiping in the temple. Think about the, day, the, the tabernacle that led to the existence of the t- temple. And the temple is just this glorious thing. I mean, Herod's temple, which existed in the days of Jesus, was one of the greatest architectural achievements in the ancient world. It was incredible, just absolutely incredible. You know, and, 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 and their definition would be like us going out and looking like at the Grand Canyon, right? It's just breathtaking. And when they looked at us, wow, you know, and they're tempted to go back to that, right? And he's saying, you know, the temple is, is incredible, right? And, and, just like the original tabernacle, there's an outer court. You know, the original tabernacle was 75 feet by 150 feet, a courtyard created by these curtains. Inside of the courtyard was another tent that was 15 feet wide, 45 feet deep. The first part of that uh, tent was the first 30 feet going in, 15 feet wide, was known as the holy place. Priests, only the priests could go in there, right? Nobody else, just the priests. Then once a year, the high priest could go through, the, through the, um, the, the curtain of the Holy of Holies and that back 15 square feet was known as the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant, it's, all that stuff is really impressive. It's interesting. It's, it gives you a physical, tangible kind of expression of connecting with God. And he says, you know what? But don't miss the obvious. And we looked at this last week. The Holy Spirit is using that layout to say, think about it. There's a barrier between you and the presence of God. Right? The whole tabernacle is set up to communicate to you. The temple is set up to communicate to you. All of these offerings that you're doing in the blood of goats and bulls and this and that, all of that is designed to communicate to you that there's still a barrier between you and God. And that's called sin. And so the whole thing is laid out to communicate to us that God is holy, sin is always a big deal, and our human effort is never going to fix the problem completely. Because it's not about behavior modification, it's about identity transformation. So it's in that context that we want to pick up with our text today. And I really do want to invite you to, uh, to read along with me. Again, our, our passage is a little tedious. I think it will help 
find it helpful if you read along, and then I'm going to try to make it really tangible for us, right, so we can get our hands on it. We're going to start with verse 11 of chapter 9. We looked at verses 1 through 10 last week, and, and, and our time restraints, I don't have a, time, a lot of chance to go back and redo all that, so we're going to just start fresh in chapter 11, verse 11 of chapter 9 today. So this is a page... I think 1,065, 66 in, in your, in your uh, Bibles underneath your chairs. And notice the first word, but. But. And what he's trying to say, the situation's changed. Right? He, he just got done earlier on saying that all the stuff that we do in the temple can't really give us a clean conscience. We, we, we walk out realizing that we still have guilt before God. It doesn't make us to a place where we can stand in the presence of God and feel guiltless, right? But, he's, but Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. In the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, in other words, not like the temple, not like the one that Moses built, but that is not of this creation. He entered the most holy place once for all. This is the, in the tabernacle in heaven, if you will, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of young cows, sprinkling those who would, are defiled, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciousness from good works, so that we can serve the living God. And, and, and part of his, 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 what he's trying to say here is like, hey, listen, if, if, if you, all these offerings that were made from bloods and goats, right? And listen, these things were important to them. I mean, their livelihood relied on blood, on goats and, and bulls, right? They used them to plow fields, they produced milk, they did all kinds of other stuff. They, they, this is, so it's like saying, you know what? It's like us just driving our car off of a cliff as a gift to God, right? I mean, it's costly to them. It says all that does is, is buy a, an external cleaning, but Christ can change the inside. He can change the heart. He can change our sense of conscience, the way we feel, how, how we see ourselves, who we are. Therefore, he's the mediator of a better covenant, of a new covenant, so that those who are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance, because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. He said, where a will exists, the death of the one who made it must be established. And so what he's doing here. Again, just trying to create some understanding because this is not the language that we use very often because we don't live in a blood sacrifice relationship with God anymore on a daily basis like they did. What, he, what he's really saying there is that up until the time that, that somebody dies, they can change their will. Right now, right now, everything that I have, if I die first, everything goes to Christina. But two hours before I die, if I change that, then that gets changed. But once I'm dead, a minute after I'm dead, a second after I'm dead, can never be changed, right? So he's saying here, so what he's saying is even in the old covenant, we're going to read this in a minute, when they solidified it with Moses, they killed things that were important to people, their, blood, their goats and bulls, to finalize the fact that this was a will that could no longer be changed. And it was an agreement, covenant, that could not be changed. 
That's the death of Christ did the same thing with God's plan for his life and redeeming us. Verse 17, for a will is valid only when people die. It's never in effect while the one who made it is alive. This is why even when the first covenant was inaugurated with blood, for when every command had been proclaimed by Moses to all the people according to the law, in other words, he had read the whole will out to them, he took the blood of calves and of goats along with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop and sprinkled the, whole, sprinkled the scroll itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God has ordained for you. And so it was ratified. It was finalized. The will became operative, if you will. In the same way, he sprinkled the tabernacle and all the articles of worship with blood. According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Just a few more verses, and then we'll try to unpack it a little bit for us today. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be purified with these sacrifices. In other words, on the, the earthly tabernacle, which is a copy or a mirror, if you will, of the heavenly one, this is what needed to be done to purify it. But the heavenly things themselves to be purified with a better sacrifice than these. For Christ did not enter the sanctuary made with hands, which was only a model of the true one, but into heaven itself, so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. He didn't do this to offer himself many times, as the high priest enters a sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. Otherwise, he would have had to suffer many times. But now, many times since the foundation of the world, but now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. He doesn't just cover it, he removes it. And just as it is appointed for people to die once, and after this judgment, so also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are awaiting him. All right. Tedious stuff, right? This is not what you read on a Monday morning as a pick-me-up before you go to work, right? It's like, I need, an, I need a spiritual inspirational word, right? But it's, it's the foundation, Right? If we want to think about a lot of the truths that God's words give us as, as something we can use to stabilize ourselves, what they're resting on is what we're studying today. Right? If you were, if you were to, to take a cane to try to stable yourself, stabilize yourself and you put it on the top of water that's 10 feet deep, it's not going to help much when you lean on it, right? Because it's not solid. This is what it's built on. Right? So what he's trying to say to us is that, all right, listen, the tabernacle's communicating a message to us. God's holy. Sin really matters to him. And everything that we can do from our personal effort, all human effort is only going to change our behavior. It's not going to change our identity. It's not going to solve the problem. It's just going to show our remorse about it. And so he invites us to put at the best to, at that place where the core that drives all of our decisions, the way we orient our compass towards north, he invites us to build our lives around the life, the promise, the identity, the gift that God is trying to give us in Jesus Christ. And there's some things that we need to understand to get to that place. Now, again, I know this isn't kind of easy, but the, the very first thing, listen, and 
and this is huge for us, but it's so hard for us to get it right. We need to understand the power, the impact, the result of the blood of Christ on the cross for our own lives. Again, that's not, a, that's not something we, you know, we don't think about blood sacrifices anymore now, right? If we were, if we were offering bulls and goats out here, we would have we would have the animal rights people, right, just circling the whole... Because we just don't do that anymore. I, I understand. We don't need to do that anymore. But there's, there is tremendous power in the blood of Jesus Christ. And you and I are not going to be released into the life that God has for us until we understand that power. Now, he does a little compare and contrast here. I don't know if you, any of you ever had to do those kind of compare and contrast essays when you were in school, right? Read this poem, read this poem, compare and contrast them. I hated those, so I, and I was never very good at them. So, um, but, so you, he does it. So let, let's let's look at the let's look at the locale where these sacrifices take place, right? So one of them is in the earthly tabernacle, later the temple. That's where it's taking place. The other is taking place in heaven, right? In his mind, and and I'll use my imagery, it's the difference between a t-ball field in Sterling and Fenway Park, right? You're You're just not in the same league at all, right? This sacrifice takes place, so to hit a home run in t ball means it went through like, 10 five-year-olds' legs as it rolled out into the outfield to hit one over the green monster in Boston in, you know, off of a real life. That's a whole different story. It's a different, it takes place in a different place. Not even the same arena. The origin, the source of that blood is totally different. Bloods and goat, goats and bulls. Again, those are priceless. They're precious to those people. They need them. It's not the same thing as the blood of the Son of God that never tasted a single molecule of sinfulness offered for us. And you see the impact. One is, one, one, it, we walk away, and, and this was last week, the impact of this. One, we walk away, it's not able to give us a clean conscience. We walk away and we're still aware of the fact God's holy and we're not. The second one says we walk away with a clear conscience. We walk away without any need to feel any guilt or barrier or, or in, a, in unworthiness in the presence of God. We get eternal redemption, not needing just to come back again and do it next year at the same date. It's totally different, right? And I got to tell you, th- this is a powerful thing for us to understand because many of us sitting in this room this morning are not experiencing the fullness of the power of, the God's, of Jesus' blood in our lives because we're not living with purity. We're still carrying a load of shame. Now let that sink in for a minute. There's a lot of us, even though we know we've been forgiven in Jesus Christ, we still carry around a tremendous amount of guilt and shame over what we've done. And, and I got to tell you, unfortunately, the church sometimes has cultivated that awareness, right? And, 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 and if you've been negatively impacted by churches in the past along these lines, I, I, on behalf of the church universal, I ask for your forgiveness. 
Let me give you some examples. You know, there was a time and a day when, when, when you know, God hates divorce, right? And there were, but when people got divorced, even if, even if there were good reasons, even though they, they were shattered by it, even though they, they, they didn't want it, those kinds of things, they would still often, and, and they would, it would ask for God's forgiveness, and they were trying to, they're trying to be, they, they would walk into the house of God, and they would just feel like they just didn't belong the same way anymore. You know what I mean? Forgiven, but carrying the shame. It's true with, today is Sanctity of Life Sunday, right? And one of the most difficult things is, is to, for us is for people who have experienced the tragedy of abortion in their own lives, felt like they were backed into a corner, the only decision they could make. And then later they come to a point where they're really seeking God's forgiveness about it and they just can't release the shame. And the power of the blood of Christ is, is that there's no more shame. You're pure. If we confess our sins, God's faithful and just and he cleanses and forgives us and he cleanses, he washes away, it's gone, right? It's not there anymore. Right? And we need to release the shame and embrace the purity that God gives us in Jesus Christ. We don't have to walk away from our relationship with God with the sense of, I really don't have a clean conscience. We should be able to stand literally in the presence of God, facing Him face to face, and have absolutely no sense of being unworthy to be there because God has made us pure. In Jesus Christ. And we need to understand the power of Christ's blood to do that for us if we're ever going to get to that place. And I, and I could go into lots of story, but I'm, I'm going to set that aside there. But the flip side of that is we also have to understand that the, the, the power of Christ's blood is not designed to allow us to tolerate the presence of sin in our lives. It's actually designed to be the cure for sin in our lives. You know, if you read my column this week, you know, I think one of the things we often struggle with in our lives is that, you know, we, we, we can get to a place where, where we, can, we, we, we become comfortable with, we tolerate, we're no longer on guard against things in our lives. And I use the example of our children, right? At home, our kids whine, they complain, they do this and that when, you know, when they're six, seven, eight, nine years old, when they don't like anything, they're bored, they hate what you make for dinner, whatever. They go to somebody else's house and when you get them back, they're like, your kids are so well-behaved. They said, because when they're gone, right, they're really on their, they are, but they're at home, they just let their guard down and it all comes out. Sometimes we do that, right? And I got to tell you, the reason why Jesus' blood purifies us from a sin, is not so that we can live with it, but it's so that we can be victorious over it. It can cure it. Let me use an example from my own journey. Perhaps some of you have been through the same journey as me, but so my, my, my family, particularly my father's side of the family, has just a, a long history of heart disease and high cholesterol, right? High blood pressure, high cholesterol kind of idea. His, I, several uncles on my dad's side died of, in their 50s and early 60s from multiple heart attacks and et cetera. And my dad had high cholesterol all the time. It's one of those gifts that he gave to me. So I'm in my late 20s, early 30s, and I go in for my annual checkup, and they tell me I've got... High, high cholesterol. So I'm talking to my doctor. And I said, all right, so if I got really serious about this, right, and I tried to eat the right way and do all this kind of stuff, how much am I going to be able to lower my cholesterol? He said about eh, maybe 10%, maybe 15. 
So I'm doing the math in my head. So, so that means I'm still going to be about 100 points over where you want me to be. And he's like, yeah. So I said, yeah, I think I'll take the medication. So at the beginning, right, you have to go back in when you start taking a stat, and you have to go back in to have your liver checked, you know, so you're not sure you're screwing stuff. I'm glad there's a, my memory's good enough because I've got some medical people saying, yeah, 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 that's right. You know, if you have any med- aches in your muscles, you need to come in right away, all that kind of stuff. So I go back, for the, so that's six weeks before I go back in, I'm really being a good doobie, right? Cut down the red meat, no french fries, trying to eat more salad, all that kind of stuff, right? I go in, my cholesterol's dropped a ton, and I got no issues, Right? But then, because the medication's working, you kind of let your guard down a little bit, right? You know, and, and, and so, within, so then you eat a little junkier stuff, and you go in, and your cholesterol's still okay. So then you eat a little bit more junky stuff, and next thing you know, you're back the way you were before. But the medication's doing all the work, right? Sometimes that's the way we approach our lives spiritually, right? Jesus can forgive me. Jesus has forgiven me. So what's the big deal? That's not why Jesus has forgiven you. He's not forgiving you so that you can just go back to the way you were. He's forgiving you so that you can be released into who you're supposed to be. He didn't come just to perpetuate the problem. He came to cure it. And so, and what we need to appreciate, what I need to appreciate is that that every single time we choose to do it our way rather than God's way, we, we move away from the center of God's best for us. You know what I mean? If, if, if this platform right here is a place where God can share his absolute best with me, every blessing, right? Every single time I choose not to do that, I decide not to be gracious. I decide to hold on to anger. I decide not to forgive. Time I choose to be selfish or this or that. Every time I do that, I move further and further and further away from the center of what's God. There's always a cause. And Jesus has forgiven us the power of his blood is that we can cure that problem and we can actually dwell right here in the smack dab in the middle of it. Does that make any sense? Right? But sometimes we think about, you know, well, I can live over here and it's not going to be that bad, you know, and et cetera. And, 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 it, and what's matter is that our definition of success, what really matters eternally is screwed up because we haven't chosen Jesus as best. Now, we're, our time's almost up, so i got to go through these next points pretty quickly. But they all really kind of flow out of that. And, and, and the first one is this, that, you know, once we've experienced, understand the power of what God's blood can do for us, that it, it removes all of our shame, all of our guilt, doesn't take away the consequences of our sin, but it removes all that so we can live pure. And the thing that you and I have to do is we have to respond to the call of God in our lives. Look at verse 15. Notice where he says, Therefore he's the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called might receive the promise. In order for you and I to live this promised life, where we're living under the power of the blood, we're, 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 not, we're reverting back to some kind, but we're embracing what God has as best for us, you and I have to respond to God's call in our lives. Now, we could go into a lot of theological stuff about this, but what I really want to point out to us is that this is not only something that we do kind of an overarching, once-for-all, final kind of sense, where we say yes to Jesus and we step into faith by acknowledging our need for a Savior and embracing Christ as our Savior and Lord. There's that universal kind of once-and-for-all final thing, but there's also a daily part. Where Jesus said, you know, if anyone's going to come after me, right, he's going to deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. 
And for you and I to live with this promise, we not only have to embrace Christ once for all and enter into that relationship, but we have to choose every single day to walk in it. And that's very much like the journey of marriage for me, right? I chose on July 21st, 1984, to enter into a relationship with Christina, and I promised to love her and to respect and to hold her, all those kinds of things, right? And every single day I have to get up and choose to do that as I relate to her. So there's a universal sense and there's a daily sense that goes with it. You have to respond. Nobody can respond to the call of God for you. Not your parents, not your children, not your spouse, not your grandparents, none of those things. You personally have to respond to that call. Secondly, you have to live for more than the here and now. Notice what he says here in verse 14. He says that you and I have experienced this, the power of Christ's blood in our lives so that we can have our consciences cleaned so we feel perfectly pure before God so that we are released to serve the living God. When you and I are trying to experience the power of Christ's blood in our lives and we are committed to making life about us instead of life about God, it's just not going to work. Because life is about God. And so it's not just about what's good for us, it's about the good news. right? So there has to be this transformation that goes on. And so many of us are coming to our relationship with God and saying, God, I'm here to have a better relationship with you so that my life can be better for me. So it's really about us rather than us being about God. And there's a sense in if you and I are going to really experience this full life, he's saying our, our orientation has to be about serving the living God. Got one last point. And look at the very end of this. It says, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins, that's what happened on Calvary. He's going to come back a second time. That's the second coming, right? Not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So you notice in your outlines this morning, my last phrase is, long don't dread. And what I mean by this is, I have memories as a kid, right? There were days I couldn't wait for my dad to get home, right? You know, he had, that morning, you know, especially when you're real little, it's like, you know, all right, I'll, yes, I'll play catch with you when I get home today or whatever, right? And you just couldn't wait for dad to get home. I remember days with my own children, right? I'd be walking up the steps at our, at our home in Rockland and the kids would be standing at the door so excited, you know, they now because you're home. So they're just longing for you to get home. I also remember days when my mom sent me up to my room to wait for my dad to get home. And she said, you know, just wait until your father gets home. And the sense of anticipation was a lot different. Do you know what I mean? Because sometimes you're up there and you're looking out the window and here comes, uh-oh. You know, and you figure, all right, how did, my, my dad was a spanker, right? You know, I'm not recommending that, but that's what I was growing up with, right? And being a farm boy from Missouri, when it was really bad, he would pull off the belt and across the face. So you're trying to figure out how to sneak the magazines in there where he wouldn't see them, or you're putting on six pairs of underwear before he got home, and you know, all these kinds of, because you had the sense of dread, right? You had this dread, no, right? There's this invitation from God to live your life in such a way 
that you can long for him to come, not to dread it. And my invitation to, to you today, in the name of the author of the book of Hebrews, who ultimately is God, is to invite you to live your life where you're longing for the coming of Christ because you're living the promised life. Let's stand, let's pray together and then we'll conclude our service. God, thank you. You know, Father, this is, this is it's heavy sledding. It's tedious stuff, but it's transformational stuff. It's rich stuff for us. It's important stuff for us. God, I pray that we would be a people who truly long for the life that you can give us and then we long for the eternal life that you're going to give us. For I prayed in Jesus' name, amen.